Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It is Tuesday morning, and this is not Tuesdays with Tata. Um, I've got a special episode for you today. Uh, Tata and I will be back on uh, next week on Tuesday with something new for you. But I had an opportunity last Friday to sit down and get on Zoom and talk to U.S. Air Force fighter pilot Hazard Lee. Hazard um, was an F-16 pilot, and then he transitioned to the F-35, which is our new stealth fighter that's being used by Allied Air, Allied Air Forces all over the world. And Hazard was one of the guys that wrote the training program. He's teaching other pilots how to fly this airplane. And um, he left active duty. Well, you'll hear his story, but he left active duty a few years ago and uh, now mostly teaches and flies part time for the Air National Guard. And um, he's got a, an amazing YouTube channel, almost 300,000 followers on YouTube. He's got a really engaged group of 60 some odd thousand followers on Instagram, which is where I met him. Um, I, I saw his I follow a lot of pilots on YouTube, on YouTube and Instagram. And he's got this really cool channel where he'll watch a video of other people flying and then comment on the things that are going on in the video or he'll pull up a clip from a movie where they talk about aviation and he'll, and he'll break that down and help you understand what's really happening and what's real and what's not real. And so I started following him and then I saw that he had released, it was getting ready to release a book. And it turns out Hazard has written a book about clear thinking. It's called The Art of Clear Thinking, A Stealth Fighter Pilot's Timeless Rules for Making Tough Decisions. And this book is releasing today from St. Martin's. It's, it's available anywhere books are sold. And I reached out to Hazard and said, hey, what do you think about being on my podcast? I kind of told him about me and about how I'd had a couple of Air Force Thunderbirds on the show. And I noticed that his book was endorsed by, I mean, general officers, uh, NASA astronauts, CIA agents. He's got just an incredible group of endorsers on this book. And this is his debut book. It's not ghostwritten by somebody else. He wrote it himself. So I was just super impressed. And I reached out and said, I'd love to have you on the show. Um, can I get an advanced copy of the book? And he was so gracious. He sent me a copy of the book, which I read in three days. Um, and it's just incredible. It's, it's one of the best books on leadership and clear thinking and decision. It's really about decision making and one of the best books I've ever read on that topic. Um, and we had a, just a, a wide ranging conversation about flying and about war fighting and about leadership and about thinking and, and problem solving. It's just a smart guy and I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. I think you will, too. Um, Hazard Lee, as I said, a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot who began his career flying the F-16, uh, which is a really cool airplane that lots of kids grew up wanting to fly. Um, he was a flight commander. Uh, he had 80 combat missions in Afghanistan, and he's the only fighter to ever fly two different types of jets into combat on the same day while supporting troops under fire. How cool is that? Um, so he's done a lot of work serving our country. I'm really grateful for that. And then he was handpicked to fly the F-35, which is the most advanced fighter uh, fighter aircraft in the world. While it was still in development, and he and he really helped, uh, he became the chief of training systems to kind of teach people how to train pilots how to fly this new airplane. Um, and it's really cool. His social media accounts combined to reach almost 300 million people every year. And the art of clear thinking, a stealth fighter pilot's timeless rules for making tough decisions is his new book that's out today um it reminds me of malcolm gladwell and chris voss and some of the favorite writers that i have uh, hazard just did a great job and i told him if this is your first book then the sky's the limit and pardon the uh, airplane pun but it's true this guy's got a great future as a writer you can learn a lot from him hazard and i had a great talk it's not a spiritual conversation it's it's really a thinking decision-making conversation it's got a lot of value i think it will help you it'll help you change your mind about the way that you solve problems and i'm always telling you friend you can't change your life until you change your mind and hazard lee is going to help us get that done and the good news is you can start today 
Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like to show Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Well, friend, welcome back. I'm so excited to be with really just a guy that I think is one of the coolest guys I've ever encountered. I've got United States Air Force Major Hazard Lee on the show with us today. Welcome, Hazard. Lee, this is great. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited to talk to you. I, I, I found you on Instagram um, because I follow a bunch of fighter pilots and different people. And um, I'm a brain surgeon, okay, but I'm I live vicariously through fighter pilots. <laughs> I was was one of those kids that uh, I wouldn't have had if I could have had trading cards that weren't baseball cards. They would have been fighter pilot cards. So I've always been kind of a a fan of aviation. Both my parents were private pilots and I grew up around it and spent 12 years in the Air Force, 14 years in the Air Force. And, and, uh, when I found you, it was because you were, you were reviewing videos of other people flying and like talking about the, the things that you were seeing. It was just really cool. So you did a nice job. And then I found out you're releasing a book next week and I thought, I got to get this guy on the podcast. So tell us, Hazard, a little bit about your career and your life and, and then we'll get into your book and your story after that. Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, like you, I grew up wanting to uh, to fly fighters. I was really really interested in it. I uh, I went to an air show when I was five, and so this was back in the day when you could hop into an F sixteen or F fifteen. They had them parked out there. I don't think you can quite do that anymore. But put the no. helmet on, and after that, I was hooked. I knew that's that's what I wanted to do. It's a little bit tough as a kid to to have this dream. If you're a baseball player, you know, want to be a professional baseball player, football player, you can play, play those sports. But as a kid wanting to be a fighter pilot, pretty much all I could do was just memorize all the facts about airplanes. And, you know, I was, I was obsessed with all the movies and it wasn't until I was around, I was, I was, uh, 12 years old that I flew in a Cessna. It was a 152, basically a, a flying lawnmower. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I was just hooked. This was in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico. My dad uh, was a physicist. So a uh, small town out there, you know, home of the Manhattan Project. And oh. there's a, a mesa that the air, airfield uh, sits on. So as soon as you take off, it's like taking off of an air ca- aircraft carrier. And uh, there's a, there's about a thousand foot mesa that you're uh, dropping off of. So after that, I was hooked. I uh, applied for the Air Force Academy. I didn't get in, so I, I wish I kept it, but I got a rejection letter from the Air Force Academy. I thought my dream was crushed because back then I didn't quite know all the paths to becoming a fighter pilot. And uh, a few weeks later, I got a letter saying if I went to a place called New Mexico Military Institute, kept my grades up, I could uh, reapply for the academy and they'd give me kind of a, a priority look at it. So wow. I got into the academy that way. 
Uh, at the academy, I was a boxer, so collegiate boxer, which actually caused some issues the day before my flight physical. I got hit in my ear and it ruptured my eardrum. Oh, and no. uh, I, I thought the dream was dead there once again. And so went through a couple months of uh, waivers to to try and, uh, first of all, get my ear healthy and then to uh, go through the process of applying uh, to get my pilot qualification. Uh, you know, So I was good, good on that end, got selected for pilot training, went to Vance Air Force Base, flew the T-6 Texan II. It's almost like a P-51 Mustang out there. Yeah. I was hooked. Uh, like nothing else before. I love the combination. It was almost like f- sports and school combined together. So it really clicked for me. I wasn't a great student. I wasn't a, a great athlete, but that's something that really clicked for me. Uh, went on to T-38s after that, selected to fly F-16s, and uh, flew the F-16 for six years, uh, deployed to Afghanistan, and in 2017 uh, was selected to be one of the uh, the initial people flying the F-35. This was pre-IOC, uh, so it wasn't uh, ready for combat yet and have been in the F-35 ever since. In 2020, I got out of active duty and uh, I'm now in the reserves and uh, a writer. And then, as you said, uh, do some social media stuff as well. So it's been a fun journey. Wow, that's that's an amazing story. And, and just a couple of points during that journey when when you could have given up and done something else. And so, you know, my, we don't know each other yet, but my books um, are all about the path from hopelessness to hope. One of my books is about brain tumors and people who encounter fatal diagnoses and how they find a way to, to manage to put their lives back together. And, and one of my books is a memoir of my time in Iraq and, and combat and PTSD and all that stuff and how you find your way back from big things like that. What's the, what's the thing for you that kept you from giving up when it seemed like you might have lost it all? Like you don't get in. Why don't you just go to business school or something else? What makes you, what makes you keep going? I don't know. It's just always been in my blood since I was, you know, just a, a young kid. I always was just a fighter and, uh, and really didn't give up. So, uh, I, I think a lot of it is genetic. I, I uh, credit my parents a lot for fostering that, especially now that I have kids. You can see they have their own personalities. They really do their own thing. But as a parent, you can nurture a lot of things as well. So you might not be able, you might not be quite a uh, a carpenter, but you're you're a, a sculptor of like adjusting, yeah. you know, how they're uh, how they're growing. So I, I guess I have to credit just just the my DNA as well as my parents and that combination. But I've already, always been uh, pretty resilient. That's that's amazing, and that resilience is actually one of the key. Um, scientifically, that resilience is one of the key elements of being able to go through hard things and still find a way to back to sort of a, a productive life. And there's some some people who, if they don't have that resilience piece, then any little thing that comes along in life can blow them up. And you, you write a lot about it in your book, actually, about about errors that people make when they encounter hard things and, and, and strategies for putting yourself back together so you don't crash the plane, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I think that's a, that's a great example of, of the kind of person that can overcome hard things. And, and uh, I credit you for um, pushing through those hard things, rupturing your eardrum could have put you out and you didn't let it. That's a, that's a, that's a big deal. So t- talk for a second about the difference between – this is just a nerd question. What's the what's the difference from a pilot's perspective of the 16 and the 35? Like I've heard different pilots comment on flying those two airframes. And what do you think about, about those two planes? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. There's a lot of misinformation out there as well. Um, F-16, sexiest fighter ever built. Uh, still my favorite plane. It's the one I grew up wanting to fly. It's an incredible aircraft. And yet it was built in the 1970s. So imagine a 1970s Corvette. It's not going to be able to compete with uh, modern race cars. So it's a, it's a great plane, my favorite airplane. But the F-35 just uh, blows it out of the water in terms of capability. So it's really comes down to a few things. One is stealth. So that's that's the ticket to a high-end or even medium-end fight now. So you have to be stealth. F-16 uh, is not stealth, and it's something that needs to be baked in. Most of it comes from the, the shape of the aircraft. Um, so it's stealth. It uh, has fantastic sensors. So you really need to have amazing sensors. So it's almost like uh, playing a game of football, but you're invisible. So they can't see you and you can see them. So it's almost not even fair in the F-35. Sensor fusion. So in the F-16, we had, unfortunately, six times the CFIT controlled flight into terrain that other jets had. Some of that was due to a G-lock where you are pulling too many Gs and you pass out. But a lot of it was where you're flying along at low altitude and you uh, end up running into a mountain because you're focused on the radar. So there was no fusion in the F-16. It was all your brain doing that. And it was a rat's nest of technology. It was 90s, 2000s, 2010s technology all stacked on top of each other. Whereas the F-35 fuses all that together. So it's a red dot if it's a bad guy, green dot if it's a good guy. So as from a pilot's perspective, it's amazing. And you also have an augmented reality helmet We had the basic building block of that in the F-16, but in the F-35, it's like that on steroids. So when I look out, we don't have any heads-up display. Everything's in the helmet. So when I look out, I see symbols over all the good guys, all the information I need for them, uh, symbols over all the bad guys, everything I need to engage them, and it follows them around as I'm moving in space. So tremendous in terms of being able to keep your situation awareness high. And then lastly, um, I would say that it has to do with being able to network between aircraft. So it's something that's not sexy in an air show. Um, but uh, uh, let's see, 80% of uh, of our aircraft right now are fortune fighters, those F-16s, F-15s. Only 20% are fitchin F-22, F-35. So we're going to be with those fortune fighters for a long time right now, the estimates till the uh, late 2040s. So a big part of our job is being able to pass that situational awareness off to the fortune fighters like the F-16 to make them a lot better because right now they're not survivable in a, in a major conflict. So it's it's uh, been a fun journey. F-35 has had some, some issues, especially from a program perspective. It's massive, multi-trillion dollar program. But uh, overall, uh, you know, there's no other jet that a, a fighter pilot would want to go into combat in than the F-35. That's pretty cool. What about just from the fun of flying the airplanes? Like, it, how do they compare from the perspective of you being just flying around and, and having fun in the plane? I got to be honest, it's a little bit less fun flying the F 35. If Top Gun was F 35s, it would be a little bit more of a boring movie. So, got to admit that up front. Uh, it's a lot less of a visceral experience. You know, we were flying the F 16 quite a bit like we fly the F 35 now. So, it's not like it used to be in the 90s or what Top Gun was. Top Gun would have been semi-accurate in the 1990s, not accurate at all today. So low yeah. altitude, yanking and banking, dogfighting, that's all 90s type type flying. Now we're a medium altitude air force. We're doing these large force exercises where you're going in with hundreds of aircraft and it's multi-domain. You have space, cyber, 
people on the ground, everybody really working together to uh, to defeat the enemy. Enemies doing the same thing to you. So you're more of a systems operator in the F-35. But then again, same thing with F-16 pilots now. So you're just doing it at a little bit less of a level. So air combat has changed quite a bit. But as fighter pilots, you know, fun is all, you know, is fine. But we want to be as most as capable as possible. And the F-35 allows us to be as capable as possible. Now that's, I mean, that's right. Obviously you're, you're not flying around up there to have a, have a ball doing it. You're fighting a war or defending a nation. So it's a, it's just a fascinating conversation to have. I, I was the only neurosurgeon in the referral area for Maxwell Air Force Base, Fort Rucker, Fort Benning for about 12 years in Alabama when I was in Auburn. And so they were sending me, I would get all these guys that would, you know, they, they would, they would fly for years and break things in their bodies and have neck pain and back pain and all that. And then they would finally get to sent, sent to the war college or air command and staff college at Maxwell. And they would have a year basically where they could get surgeries and get things taken care of. And so I was, I was constantly around guys like you who were, who were telling me stories. And, and I just remember hearing guys talk about the F 35 and how they, they, hope they got the 15 or they hope they got the 22 and it was just fascinating to read your book and learn all the things that that you guys are doing now and uh, so anyway i i could talk all day about flying with you but i didn't ask you here for that i asked you here because you've written a book that combines aviation stories and other stories with leadership lessons and really more importantly a paradigm of, of how you think about thinking and solving problems. How did you come to the concept as a, as a fighter pilot? When did the switch go off for you that, Hey, I can use some of this stuff to teach people about thinking differently. When did that happen for you? Yeah. So as fighter pilots, I would say that's our primary job. If you boil everything down, our job is to make decisions, thousands of decisions, each flight often with incom- incomplete information and lives on the line. So We've really been at the leading edge of decision-making theories since John Boyd uh, helped uh, or developed the OODA loop based on his experiences yeah. during the uh, the Korean War. So I have his book just over my shoulder right there. So he was instrumental, kind of the godfather of this decision-making framework. And uh, so that's something that, that we take very seriously, that we nurture uh, in pilot training and then on as you become a wingman, then a flight lead, then an instructor pilot. We were really focused on making good decisions on the debrief, breaking everything down. We'll go out and we'll fly a mission. It'll only be about an hour and a half. We burn fuel pretty quickly, but then we'll come back and we'll debrief it from two to six hours, breaking down every decision we made and how we can do it better the next time. So sometimes we'll listen to the same radio call 15 times to really uh, hammer down exactly how it should be made in the future. So um, it's something that, that we focus on. And that coincided with... I had come back from Afghanistan in 2017, and I, to decompress, it was a pretty busy deployment. I was writing down stories, uh, just just uh, writing on my own because I had a little bit of time until I started the uh, transition to the F-35. And so I found that pretty cathartic, and uh, I was interested in maybe, you know, maybe at some point I could get some of this stuff published. And what I found out was unless you have like an audience, it's really tough to get a book published. So that happened, and then another thing happened. Uh, Luke Air Force Base was looking for a speaker who had recently been to combat to speak uh, on Memorial Day in, in a town called Carefree. It's just north of Phoenix. And so I gave gave a speech, and there was a woman in the crowd who was a teacher, and she said, my students have to hear this. Uh, 
they don't know that many military people and a lot of them are interested in aviation. So I started speaking at schools and the students, students loved it, was able to really connect with them. And I thought there's got to be a digital way of doing this. So I started a podcast that led into the social media to be able to promote that. And so I guess those three things all coincided to, uh, to writing this book. And what I wanted to do with the book is, uh, is to really showcase some of the institutionalized knowledge that we have as fighter pilots that really doesn't make it out of the squadrons. It's not because it's classified. It's just because we're busy. We want to be as, as good a fighter pilots as possible. And I had transitioned from uh, being active duty to being a reservist part-time pilot, only flying a couple times a month in 2020. And so I decided to go all in and, and write this book. And so I, uh, you know, the longest thing I'd ever written before this was about 10 pages during college. And so this was like a 10 page essay due every week. Uh, and it all had to fit together. I'm a slow writer. So I'd write about, I wrote 500 over 500 days, uh, in a row. So just, uh, just try to grind it out. And most authors say if, uh, you know, you just have to write a crappy first draft, just get through the first draft. And, uh, what they don't tell you is after that first draft, you have a lot of work to do. So I went through oh. nine revisions, really trying to uh, to hone the messaging down, which was decision-making. As fighter pilots, we're making a lot of decisions out there. We're being augmented by technology, so the decisions we make is are extremely important. So a, a fighter aircraft allows me to carry 100 times more than I could by hand, uh, allows me to, to travel 100 times faster, so I'm thousands of times more capable on the battlefield than I could be without this suit of technology. And there's a big similarity to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is being augmented with technology. For instance, as humans, we only burn around 90 watts of electricity. And yet we are, our society, the average American burns 12,000 watts of electricity. That powers the technology, which augments our decisions. And you see it in the phone you're carrying. That can do the job of dozens of people. Just uh, a couple decades ago, this podcast setup would probably need a team of, you know, five people just a few years ago. So the technology is augmenting our decisions. And actually uh, there's some predictions that there will be a bill with AI. There'll be a billion dollar company started in the next uh, 10 years who will be run by three or less people. So it's only accelerating. That's amazing. You, you, you said it a second ago and I don't want to brush past it because it's so important in, in your development as a thinker and as and in, in writing this book you mentioned the OODA loop from Colonel Boyd just tell us about that for a second because some of the listeners most of the listeners of this show aren't going to know what that is so what's the OODA loop and how did that lead to your ace helix idea that you talk about so brilliantly in the book yeah so John Boyd he was a revolutionary thinker uh in the 70s instrumental in developing the F16 so he came up with the OODA loop observe orient decide act and I like to say I know a ton about him and they teach him uh, his his teachings in pilot training, but they don't. So most of what I learned came from the book Boyd. The Air Force yeah. is, is not really dogmatic. It, it really harvests all the good ideas and it doesn't really care where it came from. So he was instrumental in developing, you know, our decision-making theory now. But in terms of teaching the history of how he came up with this, uh, it really isn't taught to us. And another downside is he didn't write this stuff down. So he gave presentations. So there's a few archives out there that have uh, some clips of his presentation, but there's not a book per se that he wrote. Um, But it was instrumental in how fighter pilots think today about decision making. So don't want to don't want to gloss that over. And uh, 
that has led into how we look at making decisions now, which is assess, choose, and execute. So assess, choose, and execute, you, you kind of built that as the, the framework of the book and how you and how you teach people to think clearly when they're under stress. But one of the things that you said, and, and the book, by the way, friend, is The Art of Clear Thinking by Hazard Lee. It comes out on Tuesday. Um, tremendous book. Hazard was kind enough to send me an advanced copy uh, digitally. I've already pre pre-ordered the audio book because I want to hear you read it yourself. Um, but the, but the book basically breaks down what elements go into solving complex problems when you're under stress and how do you avoid some of the mistakes that can be fatal sometimes or in, in most of our jobs. My, my job, it can be fatal for somebody else usually, um, as a surgeon. But for a lot of jobs, it's not life or death. It's just, can you be good at what you do and how do you, and what are the elements of that? And so to talk about the ACE helix for a second and, and sort of what that means and, and what it means for us. Yeah, so we break down decisions into being able to assess the world around us. So if you're not able to assess the problem you're looking at, you're not going to be able to consistently make good decisions. So the first thing is being able to assess, as pilots, we call that our cross-check. And I go into the book about how to find those key variables that have an outsized influence on uh, the outcome. After that, choosing the correct course of action. First of all, it's coming up with the the uh, multiple courses of action that you can actually carry out. So that comes down to creativity. And so I go through a framework uh, called effects-based planning to help develop more alternative solutions. That's something a lot of people and organizations get stuck with. Uh, you don't feel like when you're brainstorming that you're making progress. So people glom off onto the first uh, quick idea, and then they start executing on that. So I talk through a process of really structured brainstorming to uh, to develop better ideas. And then finally, executing. So executing uh, can be difficult, especially as a fighter pilot. We were flying missions in Afghanistan where close to a 1,000 people touched that, that mission or that target. So everything from spies on the ground to uh, satellite operators to drone operators to tankers taken off from different countries, everything designed to get you to the target and uh, for you to be able to employ your weapons. And so if you screwed up, you're the last link in the chain and you could uh, completely ruin, burn that target and maybe never see them again. So there's a lot of pressure involved in that, especially if you are, uh, if there's a lot of stress going on, if there are losses on the ground. So it's, you know, combat, it's, it's mentally challenging, mentally demanding. So there's a lot of, uh, techniques that we use as fighter pilots to to get through that. And that's one of the big changes that we've had in the Air Force over the last five years is really working on the human performance aspect, the mental performance aspect to try and gain every edge that we can when we fly. I found thought it was very interesting. You go into cognitive neuroscience. You did a nice job with the science too, by the way. Um, you, you go into the, the idea of how people perform less efficiently when they're under stress. You used an example of a student that you were teaching and he made a little mistake and it affected his performance. And just talk about that for the, that story I thought was really important and, and how we need to be aware when we're under stress that it d diminishes our intellectual cap capability and our decision-making capability. It could lead to really disasters. So talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So we have a saying that as soon as you put on your helmet, you lose 20 IQ points and <laughs> You know, this is, it's a common, it's a, it's a common thing that I see because I'm an instructor pilot now. So I go out and I teach new students how to fly the F-35 and these are some of the most talented pilots out there, but they're in their early twenties to mid twenties. And so a lot of times they will make a lot of good decisions 
and then they'll just have one terrible decision. So, you know, the graph looks good, 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 terrible, good, 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 or they'll make a terrible decision and then the wheels will fall off. So my job as an instructor typically isn't to get those good decisions better. It's to make them make fewer bad decisions and then to not let the snowball effect happen. So a lot of times they will choke, they'll, they, they'll screw up doing something that they know they they could do and they've proven that they can do and they'll let it just affect them because now they'll be focusing their cognitive bandwidth on how they screwed up on the consequences of that, how they're going to get failed out of training. And then they'll make a whole slew of, of, uh, of mistakes. So an example in the book, I talk about just flying back with a student. He had done, he had done really well. We'd gone out, we'd done some dogfight training, BFM and coming back. Uh, the F 35 is unique in that, most of the controls outside of the uh, the HOTAS hands-on throttle and stick are on two giant uh, touchscreen displays, so almost like two giant iPads. So it takes a little while for new students to be able to figure that out. And he switched over to the wrong radio, and uh, that kind of triggered something for him. So the above-average student now uh, had a bunch of issues on the the rest of the uh, the RTB return to base, and uh, I had to intervene several times. And that's not a unique thing. A lot of students have that issue of they they make one mistake and they let it snowball, and that's just because they haven't really trained themselves mentally to to be resilient. That's a good story, and you know you keep you said several times some lines that that I think apply equally as well to surgeons and to other types of professionals. Um, one was it's a line that we say all the time, like like if your plane's still flying, you can still make it worse, or you could still you could still make a mistake and ruin it all. And we always say if your patient's not dead yet, you can still make them worse. Like it's this it's the same idea. And you talk about that under stress, people sometimes forget that they still have to fly the airplane, like they still have to accomplish the mission. So talk about the the things that that pilots do that can translate into the rest of our lives. Um, when they're under stress or when things start to go sideways, like what are some things that you can do to find your way back to higher performance? Yeah. So it really depends on if you're starting off from a, a planning perspective. So if you're starting off from a planning perspective, going through the ACE helix, assessing the problem, then finding the proper uh, course of action and then executing on it can really help. Um, another thing is, graphing the importance versus the urgency. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of science behind as humans, we struggle with, uh, being able to understand the importance versus urgency. Somebody, you know, uh, messaging you, that's something that's urgent, but not necessarily important. So, uh, one of the studies I cite in there showed that, uh, there's a 60% increase in your ability to do what's important versus urgent just by graphing it finding the quadrant of what's important, what's urgent, and then uh, then writing that down and then following that uh, when you're actually executing tasks. So there's quite a few different things like that. When you're actually in the heat of the moment, then I think it comes down to primarily uh, physically deactivating your stress. So the number one thing is going to be to have good training so you don't rise to the level of your preparation or your expectation. You fall to the level of your preparation. So being well-trained is uh, the most important thing. Um, next to that, we have a lot of people that struggle when they're tanking for the first time. So for, for people out, out there that don't know what that is, we'll have essentially flying gas stations, uh, airliners filled with gas instead of uh, people. And we will 
uh, pull it behind them and they'll stick a boom into the back of our jet. So hundreds of thousands of pounds of, of fuel and uh, new students really struggle with that. And uh, what we teach them is to just wiggle their fingers, wiggle their toes, really slow down their breathing to activate their parasympathetic nervous system. So there's a couple different breathing techniques, but I'd say the most common is just box breathing five seconds in, hold for five seconds, five seconds out, hold for five seconds. Um, you know, don't get too caught up in whether it's box breathing, triangle breathing, or the seconds. It really depends on your oxygen demand, but really just trying to slow down your breathing can really slow down uh, and increase your ability to uh, to make good decisions. And then finally, you know, they don't call it tunnel vision for a reason. It's not just uh, cognitively you're focused on one thing, but you actually get tunnel vision when uh, when the stress starts to increase. So for me, I found really trying to push that vision out, looking out of the corner of your eyes can really help you to uh, to remain detached because that's kind of our one of our primary jobs as fighter pilots. We'll show up in a close air support environment and we'll be at 15,000 feet. We'll be able to see the battlefield. People, troops on the ground are being, being shot at. And our job is to be that calm voice, clear thinker overhead that can make good decisions because dropping a 2,000 pound bomb if you do it wrong, you can you can kill a whole bunch of people. Yeah, you tell a really cool story about that, about having to drop a bomb close to some friendly troops. And, and friends, listening out there, this book is, um, I mean, it has a really, for your first book, it's it's hard to believe that you wrote this, this as well as you did. You, you've got kind of a Malcolm Gladwell meets Jocko Willink and, and Chris Voss kind of thing, kind of vibe. And it's just so valuable. And you did a, you did a really nice job. You should be really proud of yourself. And, I, and I, I pray that the book is really successful. And we'll introduce it to a few uh, thousand more listeners, hopefully, on Tuesday. But a couple more things I want to co- cover. Um, what is effects-based operations? I thought that was an important concept that I hadn't really thought about before. Right. So effects-based operations is really breaking things down into the effects that you need. So this was really born out of uh, John Warden, one of the great uh, uh, air combat thinkers of the 20th century. And so back uh, before he came about, uh, the way that uh, armies and air forces fought were, was more attrition. So force on force, we're going to match the aircraft versus the aircraft, the tanks versus the tanks. What he did was, let's let's not worry about that. Let's break everything down into what desired effects we need. So we need the, uh, in in his case, it was the Gulf War. We need Saddam Hussein to uh, capitulate. So how are we going to do that? We're not going to necessarily have the aircraft fight the other aircraft. We're going to have the aircraft go after infrastructure. So we're going to try to take down the electrical system. So it really uh, is applicable in how we plan missions today. So we don't have specific assets tied to what we're going after. And uh, a good example of that from the Gulf War was uh, him using uh, him using payloads uh, with Apache helicopters con- to conduct the opening strikes of the Gulf War. So that's something that never would have happened before then. They would have put the, the fastest, the best jets to, to go in. And through effects-based planning, He's able to say, all right, we need two early warning radar sites to be destroyed. How can we do that? We need a couple of things. We need them to not be detected by radar. We need to make sure that they've been destroyed. And for that information to get back to headquarters, we need to make sure that we have enough firepower to destroy them. And we need them to be able to make uh, slight adjustments to their aim points at the end because the enemy was moving things around. So those were the effects that were needed. And there wasn't any dogma. It's really shedding all the dogma 
And so instead of having fighter aircraft go in, they used these lumbering Pablo helicopters with Apaches. And that's applicable to how we plan missions. It's applicable to everyday life. Say you want to uh, commute to your job. So, you know, most people would think of a car, but you really want to break that down into how can I be in that spot during that time period? And there are probably some other options, ride sharing, buses, uh, remote work. So it's really trying to get to the base first principle understanding of what you need as opposed to just jumping to some sort of conclusion early on. It's outstanding. That that story of the Gulf War is really fascinating. They were passing uh, fire hoses out of the bigger helicopters to refuel the the fast uh, Apaches. And just a, just a fascinating story. And I remember uh, when I was in Iraq seeing all the all the different type of aircraft every day in, in Balad. Um and just it was just an amazing logistical thing that was going on, and knowing that you guys were going outside the wire and and defending troops, and it was just such a cool experience. And my perspective, being inside the wire all the time, you know, we got mortared a lot and stuff like that. But we, I never had to go and, and shoot anybody. I was always there, just trying to save lives. And um, it was just such a, a remarkable thing to be around a group of operators at the highest levels of their professions. And and you told some really, you did a good job honoring those folks and telling some really cool stories. But in every case, tying it to lessons that matter to everybody else. And so, I guess if you had one thing, Hazard, that you wanted. Average person out there, you know, um, the guy who isn't a fighter pilot, he's an insurance salesman or something. What's one thing that you want somebody to learn from this book that should be the reason they go get it and read it? Well, I think it's going to depend on your situation. And I tried not to make this book one of those things where it's just one idea spun many times around. So I wanted to come up with each chapter tied to a different type of uh, concept. But I would say if, uh, if I had to break it down, I would say think in terms of expected value. So uh, ultimately, when you're trying to make a decision, what you're trying to do is assess how good something's going to be multiplied by the probability of that happening minus how bad something's going to be multiplied by the probability of that happening. That's all we're trying to do there. So that that's one concept. The second, though, is that it's not that difficult to do. So a lot of people, especially as we've become more specialized, like to rely on committees as well as models, uh, something outside of their critical thinking. But I would I would really stress that everybody should make a decision on their own before hearing that additional information from a committee or a uh, or a computer model model or something like that. Hold yourself accountable to seeing what kind of decision you would make without that external information. And then when that external information comes in, compare what your critical thinking came up with with what that external information is. Because a lot of times you're going to find that somebody made a mistake, especially with computer programs. They In the military, we have amazing computer programs. They're so complex, so uh, well thought out. But sometimes somebody just forgets one simple variable and it, it, it uh, completely blows up the model. So it's very difficult to see and understand uh, where some of these errors can come in. Uh, other times, it will be what's called the base of sand. So, for instance, a base of sand problem, it's this castle. It's an amazing computer model, but it's built on sand. Essentially, there's an important variable that's on a tipping point. For instance, uh, if we're going into a dictator's country, what's that dictator going to do? So we, can't, you know, we can forecast with a high uncertainty what he's going to do, but not necessarily with 100%. The enemy always has a vote. So if he decides to do something else, that computer program despite how complex it is, is rendered 
invalid. So a lot of times, if you come up with your own solution and hold yourself accountable, you're going to find a lot of mistakes. And if not, you'll still learn because you'll understand what you came up with versus what either the committee or another expert or the computer model came up with. And you'll be able to assess, you know, how was I looking at this incorrectly and be able to improve your thinking? So I would say, hold yourself accountable and, and make that decision like uh, like you didn't have any external influences and see what decision you would make. Outstanding. My favorite line from the book, um, good pilots use superior judgment so they don't have to be superior pilots or something something to that effect. Like talk about that just for one second because that's perfectly applicable to surgery. Like in, in brain surgery, you don't want an exciting and eventful operation. You want a mm-hmm. boring operation that went exactly to plan and the patient did did well and you didn't have to step up and do something remarkable to save their life. So how does that apply to flying? And, and t- t- tell us about that concept. I think it's a great place to finish this talk. Right. Good pilots use superior judgment to prevent situations that require the use of superior skill. So we have a lot of, lot of great pilots flying in the air force, a lot of people with good, uh, good hands, uh, as we say, uh, great at dogfighting. but really as a pilot, you don't want to find yourself in those situations where you're, for instance, dogfighting, having to eke out every performance, uh, of the jet. You want to be able to use your brain to prevent and solve problems further out as opposed to waiting to the end uh, where you're going to have to rely on your skill. That uh, really creates a optimal place for your cognitive bandwidth and then also allows other people to be able to help as opposed to getting saturated into what we would call like a furball when uh, when jets are, are dogfighting in close proximity to each other. So uh, yeah, I thought that was a, that's a good quote. Definitely not by me, but, uh, I don't think, I think it's just anonymous. So nobody really knows where that came from, but it's a, it's an adage that is even more important now that we're leveraging all this technology, especially in the F 35 as more of a systems operator. You really want to be using your brain to solve problems as opposed to using your, uh, your stick and throttle. Uh, well, you just did a nice job, and I think the book has a lot of value. Uh, has a lot of value across any kind of profession because it's about life and problem solving, and and the art of clear thinking. I think is gonna, I think is gonna be one of those books that sticks around. Um, I know I'm going to go back to it and reference it. I'm going to listen to the audio book because you, you sent it to me, I think, on Tuesday. So I only had a couple of days to kind of plow through it. So I've got a lot more to learn from you, Hazard. And I'm grateful for you taking the time to be with us today. I have one more question for you. So we don't know each other except in this short opportunity here. So I'm assuming, I know you've been through combat. You've been through some hard stuff in your life. And the, the people that listen to my show um, – most of them have come to me because I write about hard stuff. Like, well, what do you do when your kid dies? What do you do when you go through the hardest thing that you've ever been through? And and how do you find hope again when hope seems impossible to find? So tell us a story from your career or your life when you had an opportunity to feel hopeless and what did you do next that led you back to a, a position where you, you had hope and then you could take action to solve the problem? Yeah, I would say – there's one mission. So, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as a fighter pilot, when I would go through training, uh, I would hear when I was a young fighter pilot from the experienced guys, they would talk about the missions that they provided overwatch for and how they brought back every person alive. And when I was in Afghanistan, there was a, there was a mission where that didn't happen. So unfortunately we, uh, we lost an army ranger 
uh, on the ground. And so that was a, that was a pretty devastating thing. Cause as a fighter pilot, you really want to protect these soldiers, uh, on the ground. That's why you're there. So it was really a, a gut punch in the air to, to do, to, to hear that. And then it was, especially after, I mean, it was the middle of the deployment. I was on the graveyard shift. So I would fly from, uh, from about, uh, 10 at night to four in the morning. So very little, very little sun, very little sleep. It's really difficult to be able to, to, uh, just operate in the middle of the night like that. And so it was pretty stressful. And what I found was meditating, uh, really helped. So it wasn't something that I really looked into too much before that, but I started meditating every day and I ended up meditating for over 500 days in a row. And that helped another thing, exercising, uh, a lot. And then, uh, just focusing on your purpose and, uh, and, uh, your self-talk and, you know, that, that you're here for a purpose. You're not uh, necessarily going to, uh, to feel great every day, every moment, but overall, if you, if you have a good purpose for, for what you're doing, you, uh, it's a lot easier for you to, uh, to get through those tough times. And so it's not a, it's not going to be a hundred percent, but it is going to help. And eventually, you know, if you, you hit some of those ruts, you'll, you'll eventually work yourself out of them. That's right. Thinking differently, changing your mind. And, and, and that's really what your book's about is learning how to think clearly, even in the hardest moments. I think the story you told about the, the flight uh, out of Brazil that, that crashed, um, just an amazing story of people who didn't follow the paradigm of how you make good decisions. And they just flew themselves into the ocean because they made a string of errors that really the ace helix would have kept them from making There's nothing wrong with that airplane right yeah there's aviation is just a really like i'm like i'm sure no doubt brain surgery is it's a really unforgiving field and so when there's a mistake made a lot of times it ends with uh loss of life so it's been a uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword where it makes you really good at making these decisions there's no or very few old bad pilots because uh you know, if you make enough bad decisions, you're probably going to, uh, crash and, and probably won't be around anymore. So it is a, a field that really, uh, is, is demanding and, uh, you know, does, there's not a lot of leeway for, for making mistakes. And so, yeah, unfortunately air France 447 pilot ended up uh, stalling it from 35,000 feet, held back on the controls the entire time, uh, made a really bad mistake and ended up killing uh, hundreds of people. So, uh, definitely, definitely a sad story. And like I say, at the end, it's, it's, you know, when, I, when I hear that a pilot has, has died, even if it's their fault, uh, I like to think that it's not entirely their fault, that it was, it's on the shoulders of the people that taught them, the people that interacted with them. Everybody has a part when, in a, when a pilot goes down like that. That was a incredibly poignant thing that you said, like when we lose someone, in our because of a mistake that they made that we're all sort of jointly responsible for that if we've had anything to do with their training or their or their if it were their colleagues or any of that it was really really well done and so hazard good luck to you um thank you for your service and uh, i'm really impressed with your first book this if this is your first of many man you got a unlimited ceiling uh you're not going to run out of altitude on that deal because you're, you're a good writer well, thank you. I, I wrote every word in this book. Uh, I was, I'm sure, sure you, you know, Atul Gawande, surgeon, 
turn yeah, yeah. turn writer. So he's he's one of my favorite authors. So I would just go through his book, Malcolm Gladwell's book. The the books, you know, you, you pretty much can't even see the text because I break down every sentence, every paragraph, try to understand how they're weaving stories together. Because I think that's how humans, how we learn. So we can't just read a bunch of tweets of uh, you know how to you know get rich, how to be healthy. I think somebody said if if that's all you needed, all of us would have six packs and be a billionaire. So I think as humans, how we learn is the best way we learn is is through experience. But the second best way is through storytelling. I yeah. think that's something that's in our DNA that goes back thousands of years. So I really wanted to write a book that was more storytelling, like Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto uh, or his book Better or uh, Malcolm Gladwell's books where it's like 80% stories. It keeps you cap- captivated, interested, and then it kind of sneaks in some of those lessons learned. Uh, so uh, it's been a, it's been a fun journey writing it and I'm excited for other people to be able to read it. Fantastic. The book comes out on Tuesday, the art of clear thinking from hazard Lee. Uh, it is worth your time friend. Um, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something. Lisa and I will give away two copies of the book. Uh, first two listeners that write in Lee at drleewarren.com or uh, comment on Twitter. Um, we're going to send you a copy of the book. So make sure you send me a mailing address and where you are. We're going to send you a copy of Hazard's book. And, and if you get one of those free copies, make sure you buy a copy and give it to somebody else. This is one of those books that's going to make a difference in your life. Hazard, um, look forward to getting to know you better in the coming years. Um, good luck with you with the book and we're praying for you. Well, Lee, that, that's, that's awesome. Really, really appreciate that. And, uh, I will also, I'll sign some book plates. So I was, had a chance to fly supersonic in the uh, first civilian F-16. I took wow. a bunch of book plates with me. So I will, uh, also send out, uh, book plates to, uh, to your audience that, that, uh, orders the book, but oh, cool. uh, so thank you, you very much. Copy. Yep. Absolutely. So you, you can put that in the book and it'll be a signed copy from me with a, a book plate that went supersonic in a jet. So, uh, really appreciate you having me on your show, and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person. Great. Hey, man, that was cool. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Really, yeah, I, I do really appreciate you you having me on. This is this was really fun. What a cool conversation with a fascinating guy. I encourage you highly. If you like to think about thinking, if you like to learn better ways to solve problems, if you're interested in uh, combat or aviation or flying or any of these really cool things that Hazard talks about, uh, check him out on YouTube, check him out on Instagram. I'll put the links in the show notes. And more importantly, read his book. Hazard's written a really important book about thinking and problem solving. I think it will help you if you've got an organization that could use a keynote speaker. I'm sure Hazard would do an amazing job. He's just a cool guy. And I've learned so much from reading his book. And I'm so excited uh, for this new book to be out there in the world. It's a tremendous read. I encourage you to go get it. It help you change your mind and change your life about decision-making and problem-solving. And that is always something that you need to start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.